Hey guys, it's Sammy and Robbie back again to tell you about another upcoming con. And we're super excited about this one. Mm-hmm. It's another Indiana one. This one is Pop Con, Indie Pop Con to be exact. And it's going to be in Indianapolis, again at the Convention Center. Indiana Convention Center. Right in downtown Indianapolis. And Robbie will be there April 26th through the 28th. Yes. We were just at the Indiana Comic-Con, so if you missed us, Mm -hmm. you get a chance to meet us again Mm -hmm. at PopCon. Yes. Well, at least Robbie. At least me. Ashley will be there. Oh, yeah. Ashley will be there. That's an exciting thing. Ashley will be there, so you get to meet a lot of us on the network. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two-thirds. Two-thirds of it, yes. Mm -hmm. So, if you're coming to the show, please stop by the Limitless Broadcasting booth. Mm -hmm. We're always excited to see you. All right. Oh, my God. Well, I guess we'll see you guys at the show. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, it's Ashley and Sammy from the Pixie Dust Twins podcast. If you love Disney, you should come join the fun on our weekly show. Our podcast is family-friendly and talking about all things Disney. Whether you go to the parks or just love binging Disney+, Plus, we are the podcast for you. So grab your Pixie Dust, think happy thoughts, and join us on your favorite podcasting platform. Check out LimitlessBroadcasting.com and aim for the second star on the right and straight on till you land on the Pixie Dust Twins podcast. Your whole life can change in an instant. About 50 million adults in the United States have chronic pain. And because of a car accident, Robbie is one of them. In their marriage vows, Robbie and Sammy promise to stand by one another and provide strength when needed. And lately, they've been facing some of their biggest challenges. Join them as they share the ups and downs of living with chronic pain. Welcome to the Painful Truth of Living with Chronic Pain podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Sammy. And I'm Robbie. And we're very excited today because you're going to be listening to part four of our five-part series entitled Inspired by Dope Sick, a look into the family that addicted America. Dun, dun, dun. Cue dramatic music. Today, we are focusing on how opioid addiction has spread across the United States. And, you know, it's kind of like the origins of it were really with this drug. Okay. Unfortunately. So we're going to kind of look at that. Okay. All right. We're going to start. Well, pretty much throughout this entire thing, I have a lot of numbers and statistics that I looked at. So it's going to be very like, like CDC data, government data things like that very heavily in this episode. Okay. Rates of addiction and overdose have soared alongside the rise in prescriptions of opioids. Okay. News coverage of these problems in Appalachia and New England in the late 1990s made Oxycontin notorious. So we've talked about that book, Dope Sick, that inspired the Hulu series, that inspired us, the whole thing. And that is primarily what the author focuses on is Appalachia in New England, but mostly the Appalachia area. So okay. When you're, if you read it or you're interested in the book, that's where that comes from. And Oxycontin was a big deal. Set. Mm-hmm. The environment was set. 
Yes. Now, Purdue dispatched representatives to Virginia, Maine, and elsewhere to defend its drug. They blamed misuse of Oxycontin and insisted their pill was a godsend for pain sufferers when taken as directed. Okay. Which we've already established is bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Okay. A lot of these people say, well, I was taking the medicine like my doctor told me to. And then they start taking them more and more and more. A Purdue senior medical director named Dr. J. David Haddix told a reporter in 2001, I don't see where that's my problem. That's nice. The doctor said that. Yeah, that's nice. It's not his problem. Okay. Or Purdue's problem. You can attest from that. Yeah. Take that to the bank, huh? Yeah, that's so nice to hear coming from them. So we're focusing a lot on the 90s, the 2000s when we're talking about this, because this is when this whole Sackler thing was really going on, when all the the opioid crisis started. But you have to keep in mind, this is still a problem today. It's not like it's gone away in recent years. Okay. So even though it's been overshadowed by the coronavirus, the opioid crisis has grown worse. Really? Yes. Provisional data from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics indicate there were an estimated 100,622 drug overdose deaths in the United States during 2021, an increase of nearly 15% from the 93,655 deaths estimated in 2020. Well, let me ask you, how can it be more of a pandemic? I mean, doctors aren't prescribing it as much. I mean, there's more of a crackdown. But if you're already addicted and... It's still out there on the streets. True. I mean, some of that doesn't go away. True. And everyone already knows you can get high from these sort of drugs. So it's still out there. Mm -hmm. The 2020 increase was actually half of what it was a year ago when overdose deaths rose 30% from 2019 to 2020. You can take that, I guess, for a good thing that it didn't increase as much, but it's still a bad thing because it's still increased. It didn't go down. Okay. While the rise in deaths slowed in 2021, the total number of deaths is still the highest annual overdose deaths ever recorded in the United States. Okay. Over 80,000 of those deaths involved opioids. Hence the problem. Exactly. Hence the problem. Over the last 20 years, more than 7 million Americans have abused Oxycontin, according to the federal government's National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Wow. So this is officially from the government, where I got that from. Wow. Drug overdose deaths involving prescription opioids, so prescription, so these are not, you know, we're talking about the Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Hydrocodone, morphine, things like that, involving prescription opioids rose from 3,400 in 1999 to 17,000 in 2017, which is just, it's crazy. And from 2017 to 2019, the number of deaths declined to 14,139, but then increased again in 2020 to 16,412. Had a little bit of a decline and then it went right back up, which is just, yeah. We're talking right in the middle of the pandemic, right? 2020. Yeah. It's just insane to think about. Yeah. More than 760,000 people have died since 1999 from a drug overdose. Two out of three drug overdose deaths in 2018 actually involved an opioid. Okay. Just crazy to think about. 
we're not Very looking so. yeah we're not looking at some of the other like meth and cocaine and and whatnot we're looking at opioids and it's just crazy to see those numbers yeah especially today mm-hmm. yeah so it's not something that's went away since the 1990s early 2000s or even mid you know before this like 2012 2015 it's still around we're still struggling with it to kind of explain a little bit about what happens Experts say that when there are gaps in the effect of a narcotic like OxyContin, patients can suffer body aches, nausea, anxiety, and other symptoms of withdrawal, which we've referenced before. It's kind of like you feel like you're getting the flu. It's like that sort of, Right. that's the best way to liken it to. Right, yeah. When the agony of this withdrawal is relieved by the next dose, it creates a cycle of pain and euphoria that fosters addiction. So that's why these people were not getting the relief they needed, but now they're getting withdrawals on top of it. And then that's why it was so easy to become addicted to the Oxycontin. Makes sense. And Oxycontin taken at 12 hour intervals could be the perfect recipe for addiction, said Theodore J. Cicero, a neuropharmacologist at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and a leading researcher on how opioids affect the brain. Okay, so taking it every 12 hours can lead to addiction. Mm -hmm. Because patients in whom the drug doesn't last 12 hours, which we said is like everybody, can suffer both a return of their underlying pain and the beginning stages of acute withdrawal, Cicero said. That becomes a very powerful motivator for people to take more drugs. Okay. So then they start taking more than they should just on their own and... That's when we start seeing the problems. They go back to their doctor and say it doesn't work, and the doctor just increased their dose, and hence the cycle and the problem. The high availability of OxyContin correlated with increased abuse, diversion, and addiction. And just in case this isn't clear, diversion is basically when people sell it illegally. So you have a legal prescription that you got from your pharmacy, from your doctor, but you sell some of it to make some money or because you don't really need it and you want to make the money from it right. or you're a sneaky drug dealer. I mean, I don't, there's a lot of ways to divert drugs, but that's basically what that means. You steal it, whatever, break in the pharmacy and steal it. You're diverting it. Okay. By 2004, Oxycontin had become a leading drug of abuse in the United States, which makes sense because as we've said in previous episodes, just to remind you, Purdue aggressively promoted the use of opioids for use in the non-malignant or non-cancer pain market, a much larger market than that for cancer-related pain. The non-cancer-related pain market constituted 86% of the total opioid market in 1999. That's why they did it. Not because they were actually really trying to help people. It's because there was more people. They wanted to sell more pills. Exactly. Purdue's promotion of OxyContin for the treatment of non-cancer-related pain contributed to nearly a tenfold increase in OxyContin prescriptions from about 670,000 in 1997 to about 6.2 million in 2002. So that's the number of prescriptions. We're talking like 700,000 to 6.2 million in 2002 and that was from 97 to 2002 that's not that many years no not at all by that much not at all but in that same time frame prescriptions for cancer-related pain increased about fourfold so four times as much in that same time period which are you serious okay so that just tells you how big the market was and that's exactly why they went after it 
Yeah. We talked about this a little bit too, I think in the last episode, drug abusers learned how to simply crush the controlled release tablet. Remember I told you they a lot of them, it. they lick off the, the coating and they would say you could see it on their shirts because usually they just kind of wipe it off on there because who cares? They're trying to get high. I don't care where they wipe it off at. They learned how to crush the controlled release tablet and swallow, inhale, or inject the high potency opioid for an intense morphine like high. Yep. As we've said, it's crazy. And there had been some precedence for the diversion and abuse of controlled release opioids already. Purdue's own MS cotton had been abused in the late 1980s in a fashion similar to how Oxycontin was later abused. What? Seriously? So that means they were already aware of this when they made Oxycontin. By 1990, MS Cotton had become the most abused prescription opioid in at least one metropolitan area. Wow. This is before, remember, Oxycontin did not come out for a couple of years. This right. is before that. Right. Purdue's own testing in 1995 had demonstrated that 68% of the oxycodone could be extracted from an Oxycontin tablet when crushed. So they knew all this before yes. the drug even came out. Yes, they knew this. They did studies on it. So, yes, they knew it and they still released it and still said all of these lies about it. It's insane. A consistent feature in the promotion and marketing of Oxycontin was a systemic effort to minimize the risk of addiction, as we've said over and over again, in the use of opioids for the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain. And most of the one of the most critical issues regarding the use of opioids in the treatment of the chronic non-cancer pain is the risk of addiction. So the lifetime prevalence of addictive disorders has been estimated at 3% to 16% of the general population, but it's hard. Basically, there's no like big long-term or good methodical studies that have been done addressing this topic addiction. So it's, I mean, it's all guesses. So it's kind of hard to really nail down, but still we know it's more than 1% of people like they've implied. Right. In much of its promotional campaign and literature and audio tapes for physicians, brochures and videotapes for patients, and in its Partners Against Pain website, all of these things we were talking about last episode with promotions, that's when Purdue had said that the risk of addiction was extremely small and the sales representatives were told to carry on the message that it was less than 1%. Okay. The company cited studies by Porter and Jick who found addiction in only four of 11,882 patients using opioids and by Perry and Heinrich who found no addiction among 10,000 burn patients treated with opioids. So this is what Purdue referenced to say this. But both of these studies, although shedding some light on the risk of addiction for acute pain, do not establish the risk of addiction when opioids are used daily for a prolonged period of time to treat chronic pain. So these are really not in the same boat as what they were trying to say Say, it was. Yeah, it was not really relevant to what they were treating. But there are a number of studies, however, that demonstrate that in the treatment of chronic non-cancer related pain with opioids, there's a high incidence of prescription drug abuse. So prescription drug abuse in a substantial minority of chronic pain patients has been demonstrated in studies by Fishbane, Hoffman, oh, Kayanu, I'm sure I butchered that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Chabal, Katz, Reed, and Mishnah. All of these 
studies, and I'm sure there's more, but these are ones when I was just doing research that I was able to find. More prevalent. Yes, exactly. And now when they're looking at the the chronic pain patients and addiction, they found the lowest number was 3% in one study, but that one still said 3 to 18% of patients became addicted. There's one that has it as high as 45% of patients. Wow. So again, they're all looking at these number or these the data or the patients, they're all a little bit different. So they're not the exact same study every time. But it just shows you that none of them had zero and none of them had 1%. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. None of them matched what they said. And that 45% is insane. Yeah. What? There's one 45%, a 34% risk. And one of them had up to 31%. So a lot of the studies actually had a decent risk percentage. A recent literature review showed that the prevalence of addiction in patients with long-term opioid treatment for chronic non-cancer pain varied from zero to 50%, depending on the criteria used in the subpopulation studied. So again, that's another literature review. So what they do is they go in and they look at all these studies that have been done independently. Okay. And they may not those studies that they're looking at may not have been specifically looking for addiction. They may have been looking for something else and reported it. Okay. It just depends, but they basically look what their criteria is and they find studies that meet their criteria and then they report on it. But again, up to 50% they found of patients became addicted. So again, we're just, it's terrible. When Oxycontin entered the market in 1996, the FDA approved its original label, which said that addiction was very rare if opioids are used legitimately in the management of chronic pain. In July 2001, to reflect the available scientific evidence, the label was modified to state that the data was not available for establishing the true incidence of addiction in chronic pain patients. It kind of feels like a cop out to me. Like that's kind of like instead you're just like, oh, we don't really know. I mean, come on now. The 2001 labeling also deleted the original statement that the delayed absorption of Oxycontin was believed to reduce abuse liability of the drug. A more thorough review of the available scientific evidence prior to the original labeling might have prevented some of the need for the revision in 2001. You think? You think, you think, but still. I mean, at least they did something, but still, it seems kind of dumb to be like, oh, but we don't really know. Do you not really know, though, at the end of the day? No, I think they definitely knew. Exactly. They just didn't care. It's a cop-out, but yeah. To kind of look at the areas most affected by the opioid epidemic, um, I gathered some research on that, too. So opioid prescribing has had significant geographical variations. In some areas such as Maine, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, Southwestern Virginia, and Alabama from 1998 through 2000, hydrocodone and non-oxycontin oxycodone, so we're talking like not sustained release, just regular release oxycodone, were being prescribed 2.5 to five times more than the national average. So these areas that I just listed we're already prescribing more opioids, essentially, is what they're saying. That's why they focus there. Aha, uh-huh, because by 2000, you are right, the same areas had become high Oxycontin prescribing areas, up to five to six times higher than the national average. Why do you think that was, though? Because, as we said, that's what Purdue was looking for. Purdue was going in and they were saying what doctors already write prescriptions for, for not Oxycontin, but for opioids. 
Okay. Let's go to them and get them to prescribe this instead. And that's what they did. I mean, it's, it's exactly why yeah. they targeted those areas. Yeah. These areas in which Oxycontin was highly available were the first in the nation to witness increasing Oxycontin abuse and diversion, which began surfacing in 1999 and 2000. So from 1995 to 2001, the number of patients treated for opioid abuse in Maine increased 460% from 1997 to 1999, the state had a 400% increase in the number of chronic hepatitis C cases. Now that is significant because first of all, the number of patients being treated for abuse increased 460%. That's insane. Okay. Literally insane. That's a, I mean, that's just crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. And the 1997 to 1999, the 400 increase, percent increase in hepatitis cases that's important because that means people who are now injecting sharing needles yes right? whether they were just still doing oxycontin or they moved on to heroin it doesn't really matter they were injecting this medication most likely or getting worse because they couldn't get their hands on the oxycontin or needed a better high and sharing needles and now hepatitis was spreading do you need a prescription for needles it depends on the state, and I have no idea what Maine's laws are regarding that. So it depends on the state. Some states, yes, you have to have a prescription. Some states, you have to show an ID to purchase needles from the pharmacy without a prescription. Some states have no restrictions, and it's just up to pharmacist discretion. But the problem is, this is a big debate, actually, in the pharmacy community. Okay. Whether do you sell the needles or do you not sell the needles to somebody that you believe is not using them for a legitimate purpose. They're using them for illicit drug use. Well, that we could debate on other topics. Mm -hmm. Now, I say yes, sell them the needles so because you don't want other them, health issues exactly. going and on that in is the, the area for it. I don't, I don't want them to share needles with other people. I don't want them to end up with, like AIDS. you said, hepatitis or AIDS or HIV. You don't want this to spread. So that pharmacist would say, I sell Absolutely. the needles. Another pharmacist will come in and say, okay, that's fine, Dandy. I sold needles for a while. This, this is not me personally. I'm giving you an example, just to clarify. <laughs> this pharmacist, me now as being this pharmacist, I sold needles because I believed in what you said. And then they started going into the bathroom and shooting up and leaving the needles all over the ground. They started leaving them all over the parking lot. And I have children coming in here and elderly patients and other people using the bathroom who are not at risk of getting stuck by these needles that may contain AIDS, hepatitis, God knows what in them that are used because mm -hmm. the drug addicts are now on my premises shooting up and leaving them everywhere. Now that is a tough call. Ah, hence the debate in the pharmacy community. Well, isn't there a Hot way topic. to like lock the bathrooms? You could, but they still may be in the parking lot because that's another thing people have said. They lock the, they don't let them in the bathroom anymore, but now they just do it outside in the parking lot and they still have the needle problem. Well, people can do a lot of things in the parking lot. I mean, yes, really I'm not, be... I'm just saying this is what the debate is. No, and I'm trying to give they, you my feedback. They tried to do what they thought was the right thing and they ended up getting scared for their Customers. other patients that were coming in. But and I understand, but you, as a pharmacist, you can't control what people do in the parking lot. And the good thing is sometimes in states or in your area, there might also be other facilities that specifically are designed to provide needles for patients like this. Okay. You know what they're doing with them and you're able to say, okay, I can provide you a clean needle and try and 
cut down the risk of them leaving needles in places right like this, trying to help them out a little bit more and i think that's a better in my mind not that you can't go to the pharmacy whatever but i think it's better if there's actually a facility that says i can provide you with clean needles and then maybe also let me give you a brochure and when you're ready come back and talk to me and maybe we can work on getting you some help but for now i can give you a container to put your needles in like a free sharps container and i can give you think you, they would, you think i'd use that i hope that if you know you're just straight up with them i know what you're doing with it and i i know the risk let me educate you a little or don't leave your needles around put them in an empty like milk carton container or do something to be safer for everybody you know have you ever had that conversation with the patient i have not no mm -mm. but would you have that would you have that if you were if, in that if i yeah if i felt like they needed to to have someone to talk to them about it i could see that okay. but for us to be honest with you because the area we were in i did not generally allow people to buy syringes who did not legitimately need it for one we didn't carry I, I was in a smaller pharmacy for the most part so we had needles but we didn't always have a lot of them sometimes and i had patients who sometimes would no joke get four or five boxes diabetic patients who needed the syringes so number one that was one thing where i'm like i hate to do it but i also didn't want to sell when i knew i had patients who were going to need it from us who had right. prescriptions for it right you got to take care of who you can take care of number one and then number two because you know the neighborhood you get to know your patients and you don't want them being exposed to something like that and unfortunately in the area that i was in that was something i was concerned about was them not leaving the area doing it in the the bathroom doing it in the parking lot and just being concerned for safety reasons it does make sense yeah but it's not something i would i it's a great debate like you said I would prefer people were safe about it and weren't sharing needles and spreading all of this. I would prefer that too. I bet. Yeah, it's very tricky to have this when you look at both sides of the coin and what maybe you want to do, but you don't feel like you can do or yeah, it's crazy. But no judgment to anybody out no, there who's done. Definitely not. No, 100%. On this show, we just like to have debates. Yeah. Like, what, and, would you do that? Would you not do it? If you were a pharmacist, would you sell the needles or, or would you, you not? not? Tell us what you do in the comments below. And like I said, at the end of the day, I think there really should just be someplace they can go and get all of this stuff that I'm not able to give them. I can't give them a sharps container. I could maybe educate them, like you said, but what we they have to you, be open to hearing it too. If you gave them a sharps container, what would they do afterwards with it? Come so, back to you? So the sharps container, they have a mail-in program, so you can mail it back. That's an option, but you can always take it to fire station, police stations. They usually take stuff like I'm that. I'm assuming too. most of these people are poverty level. Yeah, and they, don't have maybe they live a on lot the streets, yeah. To mm -hmm. be sending things. Yeah, well, the, the mail program, you can look it up and see too. A lot of them, sometimes they cost money, but a lot of them, they, there's no cost other than buying the Sharps container to okay. begin with. But like I said, fire station, police stations, they usually take them back. You can even ask it like, maybe maybe not every doctor's office but maybe one that particularly works with low-income patients or is trying to help like homeless patients out there a little bit more they might be able to take them back too so those are options as well but i think that should be more accessible i agree it's with that treatment options help things like that i agree with that yeah so going back to our statistics about increase in this craziness 
In Eastern Kentucky from 1995 to 2001, there was a 500% increase in the number of patients entering methadone maintenance treatment programs, which is used to treat abuse and addiction. And about 75% of those patients were Oxycontin dependent. Wow. That's a lot of people that are getting treated yeah. for Oxycontin dependence. Yeah. In West Virginia, the first methadone maintenance treatment program opened in August 2000, largely in response to the increasing number of people with Oxycontin dependence. By October 2003, so three years later, West Virginia had seven methadone maintenance treatment clinics with 3,040 patients. That's a lot of people. Yeah. But that's a lot of people they were trying to help. Yeah. That's a big positive for them. In southwestern Virginia, the first methadone maintenance treatment program opened in March 2000, and within three years, it had 1,400 admissions. So another big number there. With increasing diversion and abuse, opioid-related overdoses escalated. In southwest Virginia, the number of deaths related to opioid prescriptions increased 830%. From 23 in 1997 to 215 in 2003. Again, those that's not a long time for some for that big of an increase in deaths related to opioid prescriptions. 830%. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's just it's insane. With the growing availability of oxycotton prescriptions, the once regional problem began to spread nationally. So now we're not just looking at these Appalachia areas, New England, it's starting to spread throughout the country. By 2002, Oxycontin accounted for 68% of oxycodone sales. So that's total. So this is not just Oxycontin, it's, but we're, when we're looking at Oxycontin and generic Oxycodone, you know, lumping everything together, it was 68% of those sales was directly related to Oxycontin. Lifetime non-medical use. So when they say non-medical, I'm fairly certain it's diversion. So you're not prescribed it. So you're just taking it recreationally. Exactly. Lifetime non-medical use of Oxycontin increased from 1.9 million to 3.1 million people between 2002 and 2004. And in 2004, there were 615,000 new non-medical users of Oxycontin. So it got worse. Crazy. Yet again increased. Yeah, it's insane. By 2004, Oxycontin had become the most prevalent prescription opioid abused in the United States everywhere by 2004. Just because so many people were prescribing it, correct? Because they were getting the prescriptions for it. There was stuff on the street. I don't know how much of it in here I have. Let me just look real quick and see. No, I don't think I really referenced it, but I can tell you about it. For a long time, when you were getting prescriptions, there were not central databases. So this became a newer thing, even when I was becoming a pharmacist, where they ended up with a central database where we could track narcotic prescriptions. So it's not just pain relievers like like Oxycontin or morphine. It also includes anything that's considered narcotic. So that includes Adderall, too, for instance, things you take for ADHD that are controlled. We can see even like Xanax and you take that, anything that you maybe have to show your ID for when you go to the pharmacy, anything like that, that's considered a controlled substance. We can track it now in these central databases. But for a long time, there were no central databases. So Robbie over here, we'll use him as an example. He goes to Dr. A 
and I'm in pain and he gets an Oxycontin prescription and he goes to pharmacy A and he fills it. And then he goes to Dr. B and he says, I'm in pain and he gets an Oxycontin prescription and he goes to pharmacy B and he fills it. And nobody has any idea that he's doing this because he doesn't use his insurance. He just pays for it out of pocket. So we don't know that he just went to another pharmacy and another doctor, and then he can keep going. Dr. C, pharmacy C, pharmacy D, like he can just keep going over and over again and collect all of these prescriptions to either abuse himself or resell, which a lot of these people were poor. Probably reselling them. And they sold a lot of it because they need the money to survive. And that's the way it was. So it's just a whole lot of things that contributed to it. And it's insane. And then when they finally started doing these central databases, you could track it. That's really what cut down on a lot of the misuse. And we could start to track things like pill mills where you would just go in and pay and get your prescription and leave. It was a lot easier to track people. We're starting to get more restrictive. And then after like, you know, 2010, like after that, because a lot of people used to drive down to Florida, so they would come from other states, like even like Tennessee, Kentucky. I mean, we're not just talking like Georgia, Alabama, like places they should not have been driving from with prescriptions because it was easier for them to get it filled in Florida. Really? Yeah. And there was a CVS in Sanford that got shut down from filling narcotic medications so for many years fill everything else but narcotics yes Doesn't because the da took away you have to have a license with the da to be able to fill prescriptions like that i don't know everyone probably doesn't know that but we don't just have a pharmacy operation operating license and the individuals in the pharmacy don't have their just have their own licenses we also have to have a pharmacy da license and also licensed to sell products with pseudofedrin in it so in their case the da was like yeah kind of been yeah, it, it would. Mm-hmm. So I, I doubt that that was a big positive for them when that pharmacy was no longer allowed to sell that medication. And I can't remember, I believe it's in the documentary on HBO. I think so. That actually talks about that pharmacy. And I don't know if I've mentioned this, but the main DA agent who was really going in and doing all of this, he went to Butler University and I went to Butler University and I was just like, look Great. at this guy. Now you guys are connected. <laughs> look at this guy and what he was trying to do, though. He was trying to shut down things. He was noticing these trends and he he had a whole issue with the DA that you should watch the documentary to find out more about because it's messed up. But he i believe was talking specifically about that cvs and how they would go in and talk to the pharmacist and if i remember right in the documentary they were saying something like the pharmacist is like oh you know for like the out-of-state people and the non-locals we cut it off at two because then after that we fell for our like regular legitimate like basically saying our legitimate pain patients our regular people after two because otherwise we run out and they were ordering so much of these pain relievers it was just insane and like nobody was doing anything about it. I mean, I'm sorry, but CVS had to see it. Cardinal, who pr- supplies, they're the wholesaler that, we, at least in Florida, that we use for CVS. They had to have seen it. <laughs> nobody all was the saying anything. Away. So, all the tea away. Yeah, Cardinal got in trouble too because they were supplying it. I mean, what, what were y'all doing? Nobody was paying attention to this. After that, it became much more restrictive. So we definitely would put a big kibosh if you were coming from out of state 
no, no, no. It, for any narcotic, even if it wasn't, we're not just talking pain relievers, but if I thought maybe it was legitimate, then I would say that's fine, but I'm not feeling free right now because we're calling your doctor first because I need to document that I spoke with them and they're aware that you're traveling and they're aware you brought me this prescription, like all sorts of stuff, if you felt comfortable. But otherwise, if you were, you were even coming from two cities away, yeah, you're going to need to go to a CVS that's near where you live or where your doctor's office is, because now you're starting to look kind of sketchy. And I'm sorry, because some of you probably were just legitimately in the area for something else and had your prescription with you and it was due. Or maybe you had a relative in the area. So this was the closest CVS. I'm sure there were legitimate reasons, mm-hmm. but we have to be very, you know, stick with what our requirements were which was you're out of the area, your doctor's out of the area, it, we cannot fill it. Sorry, you have to go somewhere closer to you. And that that's the rule. And they started cracking down on physicians that they thought were over prescribing. So the DA obviously would go in and take down pill mills. But we also would get our own internal memos that some doctors were given letters that we could no longer accept prescriptions wow. from them and it had to have been based on something they were doing prescribing practices but we were never really given that information other than that they were blocked in our system wow. and we would have to explain i'm sorry i can't take the prescription for this doctor you can get a different doctor or go to another location not location but another chain another pharmacy that would, that would be terrible and I don't know what the criteria is. I have no idea that we weren't told any of this. We were just told when a doctor was was blocked. On the band list. Mm-hmm. But we were required to, with every narcotic prescription or controlled substance prescription, to look at patients in the central database. That was That's a requirement for us to fill. We still do that. The pharmacy I am working at now, even though I only deal with one controlled substance, I don't personally look up people because I don't have to anymore because that's not part of my job. But there's pharmacists who actually, they do two checks. (laughs) So the first pharmacist will check and then the pharmacist does the final verification also checks. So there's double the checking to make sure everything is valid and, and legit above board. They're very thorough, which I think is very cool. But for us, every time a prescription came in, we had to check and see because we had to see, did you go to Walmart recently? Did you go to Walgreens? Have you only been filling with us? Were you at another location? All of that jazz. You have to look it up, which is why I said, because it's a requirement for doctors too, that when you went to pain management, they should have already known how often you were filling your prescription. And when you skipped a month, they see the delays in with you filling it because you were not taking it as often. They should have seen that because that's something they should have looked up. Right, but I don't think they're looking that up. Somebody is not doing their job. Right. And we know who it is. Yeah, we do. We'll get into that in another episode. Really and truly. We will discuss that a little bit more about my feelings towards a lot of that pain management nonsense. Let's see. Okay, so we're talking about national use of Oxycontin. All right. The increasing Oxycontin abuse problem was an integral part of the escalating national prescription opioid abuse issue. So nationwide, from 1997 to 2002, there was a 226% increase in fentanyl use, 73% increase in morphine, and 402% increase in oxycodone prescribing. That's insane. Wow, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. During the same time period, the Drug Abuse Warning Network reported that hospital emergency department mentions for fentanyl, morphine, and oxycodone 
increase 641% for fentanyl, 113% for morphine, and 346% for oxycodone. And that's for basically you come and you probably overdose is what I'm assuming they're implying with that. There's some sort of emergency related to something that you took. The fentanyl increase, which we're not really talking about fentanyl, but that's interesting because my understanding is, is originally if you got addicted to something like Oxycontin, you would switch over to heroin at some point. But heroin became, I believe, kind of pricey and harder to get. Right. But then fentanyl came on the market, on the black market, I should say. And so people started abusing that instead. Sure, so that's why that does that's, not taste good. You can, again, I believe melt it down, even inject it. But yeah, a lot of fentanyl, it comes in patches. Right. But I remember in pharmacy school, and this has always stuck with me when we were discussing opioids and like addiction and stuff like that. The pharmacist that was teaching us that day had told us a story about how in some hospital system, nurses would steal fentanyl patches and stick them inside of a toilet. And then she would go and get it later and like chew it up. I was just wait, like, wait a minute. This enti- would- I think she probably in the toilet tank would be okay. my assumption, not the bottom part, because that's people would see it, number one, but in like the toilet tank. And then she would go and retrieve them later and chew them up to okay. get her high. Wow. I just, oh, it's disgusting. Firstly, and oh, just, but that's what happens when you're addicted, right? Mm-hmm. You do crazy things. Yeah. Among new initiates to illicit drug use in 2005, a total of 2.1 million reported prescription opioids as the first drug they had tried more than for marijuana and almost equal to the number of new cigarette smokers, which was 2.3 million. Yeah. 2.1 million people said they started off with a prescription opioid. Wow. And what's interesting, and we're not going to really get into this either, maybe someday we'll kind of go down the rabbit hole of marijuana use for chronic pain and other conditions, medical marijuana and whatnot. But I just remember all the time in school, it was like marijuana is the gateway drug. Marijuana is the gateway drug. If you do marijuana, then you're going to go down the line and now you're going to be shooting up heroin in a couple of weeks. And you still think it's the gateway drug? I think opioids are the gateway drug. Honestly, it's right there. It tells you. Okay. I mean, it tells you there is 2.1 million reported that prescription opioids were the first drug they had tried, which was more than marijuana. Mm-hmm. So I, can you really say, I mean, I don't think that's a, a fair statement. I don't think a lot of people are dying from smoking marijuana. I think, again, in pharmacy school, one of our guest lecturers had said something to the effect of, you probably would have to smoke a pillowcase worth, like <laughs> fill a pillowcase up and smoke all of that pot and basically like hot box in your car. And then you probably would die from it. <laughs> and it's just an absurd thing to think about. Like, yeah, there's probably not a lot of people doing that. Right. <laughs> at the end of the day. Probably I don't think not. So. Yeah. So that might be actually, I think that would be an interesting topic for us to to go down. I think we've probably touched here and there on on the idea of medical marijuana and whatnot, but we'll have somebody on the show that's actually uses it and yeah. But just I'm would like to expand more upon it, right? And its use right. and and statistics about it too. And Correct. You cannot really contribute to it. I don't really like medical marijuana. It's no. not my thing. No, because it does not work for him. No, and that is a, that is a fun story. All right, <laughs> let me find where it was at. 
Oh, so sorry. Got a little off topic. Most abusers of prescription opioids get their diverted drugs directly from a doctor's prescription or from the prescriptions of friends and family. So they're given the prescription directly from their doctor or they're going into grandma's medicine cabinet and stealing it from her. Unfortunately, that happens a lot, too. I'm sure that does. Especially if they get addicted to something like that, then they're definitely raiding friends and family. And what's that show on HBO that we watch with Zendaya? Uh, Euphoria. Euphoria. Oh, my goodness. If you want to see a really good example of drug abuse and misuse, there's a lot of other things that happen in the show, but particularly her performance, Zendaya's performance, it's insane. And so well done to show what it's like to be addicted. And that's something she did. She would steal from other people when she saw they had some sort of opioid available that she could take. Yeah. That's what she would do. And that's true. In terms of illicit drug abuse, prescription opioids are now ahead of cocaine and heroin and second only to marijuana. Again, that's insane. It's just ridiculous. Now, I don't know really that much about cocaine use and heroin use as far as statistic wise or anything and i feel like cocaine use which is this is just stupid probably but i feel like the only time i really have been exposed to that is like in the movies (laughs) when they show either it's like a drug cartel so they're selling the cocaine and using the cocaine or it's it's a hollywood movie where they're talking about like hollywood actors doing drugs things like that i don't i don't think otherwise i've really I have a lot of experience. The heroin you see more often because I like to watch watch documentaries or things like that on drug abuse and things. But right. I feel like cocaine, I always just think of like a Hollywood star who's doing cocaine before they have to go on and perform or something. Right. Yeah. Sorry, that was random. Uh, mortality rates from drug overdoses have climbed drastically. By 2002, unintentional overdose deaths, overdose deaths from prescription opioids surpassed those from heroin and cocaine nationwide. Not only are more people using it, but more of them are dying from it. So yeah, that's wow. terrible. <sighs> and we've already talked about how Purdue misrepresented the risk of addiction. On May 10th, 2007, Purdue Frederick Company Inc., an affiliate of Purdue Pharma, along with three company executives, pled guilty to criminal charges of misbranding OxyContin by claiming that it was less addictive and less less subject to abuse and diversion than other opioids, and were told to pay out $634 million in fines. Is that their penalty? Yes. Gotcha. That was the, and that was at the end of the Hulu show. Right. Dope sick. They had this. That was, well, that was what they were doing was going after the company and that that was the three executives that they finally nailed at the end right spoiler alert sorry if you haven't watched it but we told you to watch it a while ago so right I don't think so you guys fault. should have done that yes exactly that's what they're referencing is the 634 million in fees the u.s justice department launched a criminal investigation and in 2007 the company and three top executives pled guilty for downplaying the risk Purdue and executives were ordered to pay the $635 million, and the case centered on elements of Purdue's marketing campaign that suggested it was less addictive. So that was, I guess, I'd like the same thing. So that was from the U.S. Justice Department. Next episode, I'll talk a little bit about that because it's really like 
bullshit. I mean, they got charged a fine, but as I said, the executives were told to pay the fine, right? Uh-huh. But what really happened was Purdue and the executives were ordered to pay the fine. And so who do you think paid the fine? Purdue. The Isn't that like a isn't very much money for them? No. And the executives were basically the scapegoats that Purdue picked because the the Sacklers, Richard Sackler, nothing happened to him. Of course not. He blamed, you know, passed the blame. Nothing's, he's in depositions. He doesn't care. He's the head of the cartel. You don't get the head of the cartel. Yeah. So they just pawned it off on somebody else. But as we know, they're still in the news because that was not the end of the the lawsuits for them and what they've been ordered to pay. And that's why I believe. But they'll never go broke from this. I think they have a lot of money in hidden accounts. Yeah. And they, a lot of them left the country, if not all of them who are doing this shady stuff, I believe. So I'm going to look more into that. But we're going to really focus on, like you said, we'll talk a little bit about this lawsuit. Not as much, though. We're going to look more at the current litigation that's been continuing on with Purdue and the Sacklers themselves who were brought into it and the fines they were ordered to pay. Also, there's a lot of states out there that sued the company and the Sacklers, too for what all happened and i want to pull up all of that information as well and that's taking me a minute so we will not have a new episode at least there'll be at least one week maybe two week break that is because i got to finish gathering all that information because it's taking me a minute (laughs) to get all the litigation stuff together and robbie will be out of town yeah i'm leaving again so yeah it's harder for us to to record especially when i'm out of town yeah to even find a time to do it even if we were able to go ahead and set up our zoom and do it it's a little more difficult just trying to find time when we're both available right because our schedules usually don't match yeah just to let you know but i don't plan on making it like a month or two months whatever it was last time right right it won't be that long like most of maybe be two weeks before we can get the next episode out that's the plan Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. I was just going to say, please still hit us up regarding if you have nausea issues and what you do for it, because we're doing it, going to do an episode on that. Robbie was talking about doing an episode in the future on the best beds. Beds. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting topic for chronic pain sufferers. Medical marijuana for- Yeah, we'll throw that in there now Throw that in there too. Mm -hmm. If you guys have any other show ideas, please hit us up on Instagram, Facebook- Anything that interests you. Yeah, anything that we have not covered, Mm -hmm. let us know. Yeah. We're open to suggestions. And we recently talked to our new friend that we gave a shout out to last episode. Yep. Philip and his wife, Melissa. And I'll be on. Yeah, we're we're still working on on it. But yeah, we'd like to, we're working on having them on as well. And they've been talking about how they want to do their own podcast. So that's super cool. So yeah, look for that coming in the future too. Yep. Don't know exactly what order we're doing like any of this in, but we will, we'll figure it out. But it'll be there soon. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead and do your shout out. And then for those of you that have hit us up on Instagram or Facebook, thank you. Yes. We really appreciate the comments. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sometimes it takes us a little while to get back to you on things. And I'm super sorry about that. There's a lot going on some days. Yes. (laughs) And some weeks. And remember that. This is something that we kind of do on the side right now. I run a whole other podcast 
with my best friend for the the Pixie Dust Twins. We do this podcast. Plus, I have a full time job, and Robbie also travels and works. Yeah, sporadically sometimes when he does work, the hours. And by sporadically, I mean like the hours are weird. Right. At times, and we also I don't know if you want to talk about the movie thing potentially. The movie thing. Yeah. What movie thing? The horror movie. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna shoot a horror movie coming up soon. Hopefully, hopefully a short a short movie. So that'll take up some time too. Yeah. So we'll yeah. let you know more details about that when we have a few more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're we're gonna shoot a short. So that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. That's the plan. No. So yeah. So make sure you hit us up on follow us on Instagram. Yeah. You can find the production company at limitless broadcasting if you want to follow that account there's also at the painful truth podcast yep on instagram as well you can follow us too if you want to see our other random things we post about sometimes yeah i am at the same lamb it's at t-h-e-s-a-m period a period l-a-m at the same lamb and Robert 1950 Studios. And we have a website, com as well. And like I said, check out our, my other podcast if you like Disney stuff. We don't, just to clarify, we don't just talk about the parks only. We mostly talk about Disney World when we do talk about parks. But we also talk about a variety of movies and productions by the Disney company. That includes Marvel. We're in the middle of our summer of Star Wars. We talked about princess movies, Pixar movies. Winnie the Pooh, live action, pirates, all of that stuff. So if you get a little put off by me saying Disney and you think like Cinderella, no. In fact, we don't even really like Cinderella. There you go. Well, there you go. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Painful Truth of Living with Chronic Pain with Robbie and Sammy. Make sure you like, follow, and subscribe to the Limitless Podcast Network's own channel, Instagram, and all things social media. And we'll see you all real soon.